Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to what's going to start off, I'm afraid, as a sombre episode of the Autosport podcast. This is the first time we've recorded a podcast since the the tragic news of the passing of Henry Hope Frost. Back when we had a proper presenter on this podcast, Henry was the uh, was the voice of it. He did a much more professional job than me, and we're all still reeling from the loss of a broadcaster, journalist, Autosport stage host, Autosport awards interviewer, colleague, and friend. So we're going to start off just remembering Henry and and what he meant to us. My first guest is Jonathan Noble. Now, of all of us here, you work with him the longest. I guess like everyone, it, it's, uh, it hit you fairly hard, but a big loss. No, oh, ter- terrible loss. I mean, you know, one of the most shocking, you know, shocking weeks I think anyone at Autosport has known. Um, yeah, Henry, just, you know, fantastic bloke, family man. You know, you remember the good times, the, the humour, the noises, the turbo noise he made, eating donuts through a tube, swearing words or gummage. Um, but also this, the huge enthusiasm for motor racing. I remember having dinner with Henry and I uh, with Sterling Moss for the Autosport show one year. And Henry, even though he'd probably heard the stories 20 times, had uh, read them in books 50 times, still took it all in, still loved it, and left that evening you know, on such a high, full of the, the fever that, that lived with him every day. That um, Yeah, t- a terrible loss for all of us. And my next guest, Scott Mitchell. You sat by Henry in the Autosport office for, for a period, so I got to know him well, even though you've been here a lot less time than John, but clearly you'll have, uh, you'll have also felt the, felt the loss. Yeah, I think, I can't remember how long I ended up being sort of desk buddies with him, but that, that, was, that was always quite fun because um, if he wasn't sort of loudly criticising, you know, silly errors in copy, which was always, you know, quite amusing in itself, there was, he'd, he'd found a video on YouTube or something that he was getting really excited about. And I think the first time I ever had a sort of professional dealing with Henry was back when I was um, I was still at uni in 2013 and I was doing some sort of freelance stuff. Um, and I suggested to 
to Henry. I found out that he was the person who orchestrated the back page to the Have a Go Heroes and stuff like that. And as uh, nobody who knows me now will be surprised, I pitched a rallycross one to him because I my my dad's a, a friend of Will Gollop. I've known him for a while, so I thought I chance my arm and give it a go. And I got the most enthusiastic email I could possibly have imagined back, like uh, urging me to do it. Signed off with six uh, R four fever and an exclamation mark, which sort of you know it, it. What was always brilliant about Henry was sort of coming in in those situations. You come into the office and everyone's normally quite good about welcoming you and stuff like that, but there are always sort of things you don't really know sort of how uh, passionate or happy you can be about some things, how professional you can be. And Henry was always really good at towing that line between being a professional and being unprofessional with it at the same time. And my final guest is Ben Anderson. I guess you've been here kind of midway between Scott and Johnny in terms of time. So again, what do you remember of Henry? I remember him chiefly for the enthusiasm. I mean, when I joined the sport, he was a sub-editor, so always criticising your stories and sharpening up your copy. Um, but he was really a fount of knowledge about the history of the sport, about drivers, about cars. He compiled his own list of motorsport winners through various series from Formula One down to Rallycross, WRC, Formula Three, Club Formula Ford. And as a national editor or a national junior at the time, that kind of information was really useful. And he was also very encouraging of um, participation in racing. Um, when I was doing track tests or races for autosport, he was always really enthusiastic about those, wanted to know about them, about the cars, what it was like to, to drive, who I'd spoken to, who I'd interviewed. And that passion and enthusiasm came across in all the things he did when he was presenting at the autosport awards or doing rounds of the tables to speak to guests or whether he was presenting the stage at the autosport show. You could see that he lived and breathed motorsport all the time and he managed to get um, interviews and comments out of people um, that were probably more than he otherwise would have done because they were they would feed off of his enthusiasm and his uh, excitement for the, the sport that they and we all love. What about you, Ed? Well, there's two things. First of all, as I said earlier, Henry Hope Frost was a professional broadcaster, unlike myself. I'm just a journalist who talks down a microphone. <laughs> so the first thing I'll try and do is actually remember to introduce myself, which Henry always did, which I didn't do at the start of this podcast. So I'm your host, Ed Straw. That one's for you, H. And the second thing is, it's repeating what everyone else has said, really, but it's the enthusiasm. And the thing I'm going to try and remember, I try and take quite an analytical approach to, to motorsport. I take it quite seriously, but I think always remembering that we are all enthusiasts at heart and love the sports. And we're all basically here because we love it. And just keeping that always in the back of your mind, even in the times when you're trying to churn through thousands of words and you think, oh, I'd rather be anywhere else but doing this, but just enjoying how privileged we are. And also our role in trying to take that enthusiasm to the people who are listening to us, who are reading us, who are watching videos. We, we've done that for me is the most important thing. And in my case, if I can just up by 5% the effectiveness to which I do that, then that's, that's a, a rolling tribute to what H offered. Well, I think the reaction that, that his death got last week and then you still see the donations everyone's made to, to, to his family and the HHF junior team, as he always referred to them as, uh, that shows that when you are that kind of person, when you do recognise the special opportunity you get in this job um, and what you can do with a little bit or a lot of enthusiasm in putting that across, it shows just how much of an impact you can make on people's lives because Henry was, uh, as you said, so, so many different things, uh, writer, broadcaster, interviewer, whatever. And he... I mean, I, I I knew how popular like he he was and sort of how well regarded he was within the industry, but I didn't realise to to 
quite to that extent. It's like every every single person I follow on Twitter making a reference to it. So I think that shows just sort of if you if you really do dive into it and you really are an enthusiast, you can have a, a massive impact on, on everyone that reads what we do and, and, and listens to what we do. And it, it was interesting, reflected in the in the paddock. I was in the Formula 1 paddock at Barcelona for the second test. We did this photo with the help of various teams, the pit board, HHF, hashtag fever, and everyone wanted to be involved in that. And we had representatives from from loads of teams and obviously they helped with pit boards and trying to make a hashtag for a pit board, which Williams did. You know, they don't have that in their pit board set. So it tells you how far his, his reach is and his impact is within both within the sport and also outside to those who whose involvement in the sport is just purely from enjoying it. And I do mean pure because there's a purity in, in, in enjoying it. And it's great to see looking at the crowdfunding page on justgiving.com. More Not than just double people. the target, isn't it? It is remarkable. And hopefully that's still up there. Have a look, maybe donate. We've had plenty of friends donating, but also people who only knew Henry through his work. And for someone who wasn't a regular in the F1 paddock to see Jensen Button and Damon Hill, Nigel Mansell all tweeting and stuff. It, it was someone who impacted at all levels, um, which I think is quite remarkable, the, the kind of impact he's had everywhere exactly and it's a it's a shame that it takes something like this happening to perhaps realize that about somebody i think probably there's a lesson in there for for all of us so i will now attempt to contribute to host this podcast to 10 percent of the level that henry would be able to do it in which case i'm going to try and keep my questions short we are going to preview the 2018 formula one season testing's over so we've had a steer on who's hot who's not who's struggling who's got work to do who looks like they're going to hit their targets so Jonathan Noble, is it going to be another Mercedes year? Uh, I think you'd be foolish not to consider them as regular race-winning challengers. Um, I think it's a very difficult game to say at the end of testing definitively one team is is like this. When we don't know the updates, Red Bull's got a big update coming from Melbourne. We don't yet know how the tyres are panning out. Um, but I think we've seen enough from Mercedes, the long run pace, the comments and messages that are coming out of the, the team. I mean, that video that James Allison did uh, talking about how much of a step forward the, the new car was over the predecessor. Everything coming from the team is very positive. Um, doesn't appear Ferrari's made the step that perhaps it hoped for. But Red Bull equally, there is positive there. And I think enough not to say we're going to Melbourne guaranteed it's going to be a Mercedes 1-2. I think Mercedes have to be considered the favourites, don't they, for the start of the season, purely based on the fact that of the top three teams, they seem to have the most consistency from last year's car to this year's car. They've talked a lot about how they've tried to iterate, to evolve the concept, to just refine everything. And on and a basic package that worked really well, okay, it was inconsistent in some places, but overall it was still the strongest car last year. Whereas Ferrari, it seems they've tried to do a bit more technically to challenge Mercedes more often. And that's going to take, it seems, some time for them to work out and get running properly so that means they might start the season with a bit more work in front of them than Mercedes do and Red Bull even if they've built the best car they've ever built under these rules they're always stymied by that Renault engine and the question of how much reliable power they can access. I kind of think it's the same as um, if for example in in football if someone like Barcelona won the the Champions League one season and they go into the to the start of um, start of next season and they haven't made any negative changes to their teams but the of the one or two main challenges around them have overhauled something or they've got something fundamentally holding them back. You've you've not just got limiting factors for their nearest two challenges. You've also got the fact that there is no reason to expect that the best has got worse when in actual fact, as John and Ben have just said, they've 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 got better. 
I think looking at the long run pace in Barcelona, everyone did race simulations. Even McLaren managed to actually string together a race simulation hey. on an ultimate day, which is a minor miracle given their unreliability. But we saw Mercedes having an advance to about 0.4 of a second a lap. So that's putting them 25 odd seconds up the road in a race. And you can also be a little bit more, you can always be more generous with that gap if you look at it in, in other means. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. But I think the point was made about the gains that Ferrari can make potentially, I think they were struggling a little bit with the high rake concept. So if they can make that all work, if it fundamentally will function correctly and they can get on top of it, then maybe there's a step for them to to have there. And then obviously the wild card is Red Bull. You know, John, great car by the looks of it, but again, the Renault power unit package is the big question mark. Well, I think the, I mean one of the difficulties now in this hybrid era, um, especially with um, you know fuel settings and engine maps and what modes they're running and DRS throwing in there's so many testings not as easy to read as it is in the past and you know one error update flicking your engine mode into two two notches up and suddenly the lap times can change quite a bit we don't know about fuel saving um there are so many factors that are swinging it backwards and forwards i think red bull appear to be in the you know the sniff of mercedes uh and f1's all this endless development game that you can say definitively today this car's ahead, but if Adrian Newey has come up with something in the wind tunnel and Renault have said, yep, reliability is fine, we can we can turn it up for Melbourne, then things change. But it's the flip side as well. Mercedes is such a strong team have kept this momentum, kept the motivation, kept the push, keep bringing things forward. And you know, if their new engine is as strong as it looks in testing, who's not to say that this advantage stays to the end. That's the, that's the big danger for everybody, isn't it? It's the Mercedes engine. Andy Cowell talked at the launch at Silverstone about how much work they'd done, not only to help the aerodynamics guys in terms of optimising that packaging around the rear end of the car that James Allison said was worth about a quarter of a second, but just in terms of redoing all the good bits about that engine and making everything better from the tiniest details of the combustion chamber to how the exhaust gases are, are working. And it's that pursuit of excellence constantly that keeps moving Mercedes forward, even as the others try to catch up. I know that's the endless game in Formula One, but their two main competitors always have this massive question mark over that potentially holds them back. With Ferrari, you talked about the new concept and whether they're struggling with that, but also the engine. I mean, last year's engine was powerful, but not as fuel efficient as the Merc. We don't know yet if they've managed to sort that problem out. It doesn't sound like Ferrari have really done a huge amount of work in terms of massively redesigning the engine for this year and with Renault yeah the, the the Red Bull might be competitive in race trim with Merck it certainly was at the end of last year but it's always those qualifying modes isn't it if they can't qualify ahead of the Mercedes and they can't get ahead into turn one they're always on the back foot and we know that Mercedes obviously has this opportunity this year to match Ferrari's success at the start of the start of the noughties and the sort of the worrying thing for me is the the parallels with that where you have in the fourth year of that five-year cycle of Ferrari dominance, they came really close to losing it. They almost got beaten by McLaren and Kimi Raikkonen in 2003. And you think, oh, they've been caught. This is it. And then comes to 2004, the fifth year, and they have the most dominant season. They the, the, the package is the best it's been in that period. And, okay, Mercedes might not necessarily walk it to the same degree, but you would kind of have that sort of hope sort of around launch season before testing now oh, this is finally going to be the year we're finally going to have the stranglehold broken but actually i think there's probably more chance of them going ahead and matching ferrari's record from 
2000 to 2004 than, than someone beating them. We all, we all hope that it's going to be this epic three-team fight. Even Lewis Hamilton front. has expressed that hope. But actually, while I think he quite like Mercedes to have a bit in hand, I think he's sincere in that he would like a, a proper fight to happen throughout the whole season. Well, he seemed to have genuine, like the best seemed to be brought out of him last year when he went with Vettel. I think he liked the idea of going up against someone he considers to be sort of in his sort of same, on the same echelon as him. And from another team as yeah, well. Exactly. He's got fed up of fighting Nico and Rosberg in the them. same There's team. There's nothing more he? satisfying, is there? Like the battle's one thing, but it's, the, it's that satisfaction of actually beating someone. I think he kind yeah. of misses that. I don't, I don't think he ever quite got that satisfaction when he went wheel-to-wheel with Rosberg in the same team. It's easy also to not really appreciate what Mercedes is doing, isn't it, John? Because evolution's almost a dirty word because we want to see spectacular new innovations on cars. But because they've been so good in the past, they can just keep working on this iterative process, improve 5,000 bits on the car by an infinitesimal amount. It adds up to quite a big improvement, doesn't it? I think it's all too easy to, to criticise Formula 1 in its present guise all the time just because one team's dominant. Um, you know, we look back now to McLaren's season in 88 with Senna Prost. We'll look back now to the Ferrari, you know, five championships and ask people about them now. They go, oh, this is the golden era of Formula 1. It was fantastic seeing Schumacher and Ferrari so dominant, seeing Senna and Prost um, you know, wheel to wheel, but when you're living in those times, you think this is terrible. This is so boring. There's not much excitement here. So, I think we'll in ten years' time we'll look back at this era of Mercedes dominance with what a great spell this was, what an impressive job they did. But I'm sure if Lewis Hamilton was racking up the wins, you know, three, four, five wins on the bounce potentially then we're going to go, this is bad news for Formula 1. Yeah, as impressive as it might be as an achievement, the spectacle and the fans watching at home. I remember being a young fan watching Formula 1 during that Ferrari spell of dominance, and it it does become boring. You don't enjoy watching the races as as much when you feel like the result is a foregone conclusion. 2004 was a particular idea, wasn't it? Yes, the excitement then comes from seeing them eventually getting it wrong and falling off the other end, because that's what draws you back, because at some point... It's, it's got to end. end. At some point, Mercedes are going to have a season where they don't win any races. But my, my fear is that under the current rules, last year was the best opportunity that a rival team had to beat Mercedes to dethrone them. And Ferrari could have done it if Vettel had been a bit more composed, if the engine had been a bit more reliable. But they missed their chance. Merck survived. They know they had weaknesses in last year's car they need to destroy for this year. And it, all the signs suggest they've done that. And if they're better than they were last year it's almost like that window of opportunity is closed until the rules change again, which is not going to be until 2021. I I think it says a lot that there's no concept, no dramatic concept change from Mercedes. They got the car, the diva. If that was their kind of, we got it wrong, we need to change things. Actually, they didn't get it wrong. (laughs) We did right. We just didn't get a few little bits, 100%. So in the fact they've stuck with it and haven't been forced to go short of the wheelbase or haven't been forced to go 100% down the maximum rake attack, shows that they understand this car, they understand what they did and they've got the answers and they're ultra confident. And the fear is if Re- if Renault is holding Red Bull back still on the engine side, that Ferrari have overreached and always been suckered in by Mercedes into pursuing their concept and one that they don't maybe fully understand. And if they can't get on top of that quickly enough, then the championship for them could be over really before it started. Let's have a look at drivers. We talked about the teams. I think those three big teams are a step ahead based on testing. Each of those three teams has got an interesting story in the driver lineup. Mercedes clearly were expecting Lewis Hamilton to lead the line, but Valtteri Bottas has got a lot to prove. First half of last season, 
he was able to give Lewis a bit of a hard time, but second half of the year, he, he dropped off and settled into the number two role. He's got to prove he's worthy of a, a longer-term future there. So, Scott, what do you what do you expect to happen on the Mercedes side? Well, I think the, the main thing is that Bottas sort of alluded to this last week, which is that, you know, there's this idea that he's a bit of a peacemaker at Mercedes after the turbulent time with Hamilton and Rosberg together. But, I mean ask any racing driver the idea of being a peacemaker and, and that being your role in the team that's reserved for people who have sort of been there and done it and know that they're picking up a bit of a, a paycheck I'm absolutely in no way referring to the, one of the Ferrari drivers as I say this but uh, with with Bottas he he knows it's make or break he, he had that amazing chance last season he did enough to sort of get his second year but because of the way Mercedes, it's all part of this amazing Mercedes machine to dominate Formula 1. Is that It's just never short term. They've got Esteban Ocon at Force India waiting in the wings. They've got George Russell, who's currently in F2. He's another highly regarded prospect. Mercedes has options. Bottas doesn't have the luxury of going, OK, well, if I pick up two or three wins over the course of this season, they'll keep me. It's not, a guarantee, it's not guaranteed, especially when you don't really know how much longer Lewis is going to carry on for. They need someone that they can say, OK, well, if Lewis goes in the next one to three years, do we have someone that can smash it in his place? And Bottas needs to answer those questions this season. Ben, how about the Ferrari lineup? That's probably the the most predictable of these three big teams. Sebastian Vettel, clearly the lead driver. Kimi Raikkonen's there just to be his wingman, isn't he? Well, people say that. Um, to an extent, I guess it's true. He and Vettel get on really well, and that helps for the, the internal team harmony, something that Mercedes are quite keen on now. They've got Bottas, and he's not upsetting Hamilton in a way that Rosberg was doing in perpetuity. Um, Raikkonen... He just his career just keeps keeps being extended unexpectedly, perhaps really through lack of credible alternatives for Ferrari. Certainly, ones that they don't have to go out and spend a load of money to to attract, which is something that Sergio Marchionne is quite keen to avoid. Um, I think Kimi could potentially have a better season this year if certain things come his way. If the engine's more fuel efficient, then that will help him because he's not so good at fuel saving. Also, the tires are softer this year potentially from Pirelli that's what they're saying anyway and Raikkonen does really struggle when the tyres are hard and difficult to turn on his driving style is quite gentle so that could potentially bring things to him a bit but really it's a one-man show for us and it's all about Sebastian Vettel he's the the guy they're really focusing on he's the guy with the most potential to challenge for the championship if the car is good enough and Raikkonen really just has to score enough points to back Ferrari up in the Constructors' Championship, something he really didn't do last year. So he needs to step it up if he wants to stay in Formula 1 beyond this year. I think what would be interesting is seeing how, if Sebastian Vettel can cope with the pressure better this year. I think people I've spoken to inside Ferrari say, you know, the big question mark is, can Vettel cope with the pressure of a proper World Championship fight? Um, We saw in Baku, we saw in Singapore, we saw in Mexico that, you know, when it comes to the absolute moment where he's got to make a, a decision and you know everything's resting on race performance he crumbles so easily with Lewis it's, it's the opposite pressure he seems to thrive on and his only weakness then is he overdrives the car a little bit I think it's maybe more to do with justice though in that context because Vettel I mean he's been there and done it he's won four championships so he knows about the pressure of the title fight and different types of battles as well we saw him win kind of from behind in 2010 we saw him hold off Alonso in 2012 
I think in the case of last season, yeah, there was there was pressure. Maybe Singapore, he was cracking a bit, knowing there was a chance to win the race. But there were also caveats in Verstappen's start and Raikkonen's incredible start that he didn't count on. That's a mistake, but it's not necessarily pressure. You can make the argument either way. And Baku, he felt that Hamilton had brake tested him, so it was more that he was he felt a wrong had been done to him in the moment and yeah he reacted badly to it but it's not necessarily i think indicative of his mental weakness in terms of dealing with championship pressure he should he should be able to do that but, but he does still, need to control his emotions in the car yeah, it's still a fragility isn't it it's still a mental fragility that we don't think lewis necessarily has he he went through that phase didn't he lewis where he was really a bit bit weak he let stuff get to him and yes. I think it was when button was his teammate and he talked about button having this great bubble around him and lewis having nobody blah 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 but I think Hamilton's been through that, come out the other side a better driver. Yeah, he's Vettel. solid now, isn't he? For a four-time he? world champion, there are just more question marks over Vettel in, in the heat of battle than you would probably expect. The other thing is, it's not just that Lewis is stronger in terms of the mentality under pressure, but also he knows that Vettel maybe has this weakness. And I think that's something we saw in his reaction to what happened at Baku. A younger Lewis Hamilton might have reacted more problematically to that. But I think he knew, no, I've got him here. I can I can rise above it. And make the most of it and capitalise on the on the weakness he's shown. Now, John, Red Bull. This is probably the most interesting of the three driver lineups. Max Verstappen had the upper hand last year, even though he scored fewer points than Daniel Ricciardo. Ricciardo, the big question is, what's he going to do in the future? Much is going to depend on how strong this car is. Because if this is a car that the pair of them are fighting for wins, then I think we'll see a very different dynamic and relationship between them than if they're fighting for third places, fourth places, fifth places. Um, I think we'll see the true intensity of Verstappen if he's gunning for wins. Um, I think we got a very small glimmer of it in Malaysia two years ago when there was that one lap where Daniel and he were battling. Ultimately, it was for the lead. They didn't know at the time because um, Lewis was well up the road before the engine blew. But I think if this car's good enough to gun for wins, good enough to gun for a championship, um, we'll see Max step up a level. and Daniel's going to have this extra added pressure of the contract the future what's going to go on there um if that car is strong then that's going to impact on Bottas's situation to at Mercedes so I think you've got a fascinating moving dynamic there well the really fascinating thing is there though so you can make a case for Ricardo being any in any one of those top three teams next year but you can also make a case for him being in none of them so this is a bit this is a serious season for him isn't it oh it's hugely I mean this is probably the, the, the defining season for for Daniel in terms of you know, is he going to end his career as an F1 world champion or, or not as a champion? And he's got to decide whether of... he does that in Red Bull or away from Red Bull. And that, it's that career move, it's so key to him now, isn't it? He's, as he keeps saying over the last few years, he's not getting any younger. He's actually become one of the old guard. Whereas when he broke, kind of broke into the upper echelons in 13, 14, he was considered one of the, the new generation, if you like, and he's not anymore. So he needs to decide whether he's got what it takes to go up against Verstappen in the same team with all that entails, and beat him fair and square, or whether he needs to do kind of what Vettel did and move to a different team and and that be the the, the key move that unlocks that championship that he craves. And Max Max would be Max fighting for wins in the championship is a different Max who's annoyed that the Renault engine's not good enough or the Red Bull chassis hasn't made the step he hoped for and they're only fighting for fifth and sixth. So it's quite there's quite a bit of uncertainty. Um and I think that situation is going to accelerate quite quickly over the first two or three races where one of them needs to step up and establish himself quite quickly. I think if it's if Max is a bit down because the car's not where they hoped it to be, then I think Daniel will sense that as an opportunity to 
do what he does with the qualifying laps. I mean, I've got no doubt that, you know, Daniel can knuckle down and do it and be more than a worthy teammate to Max. The question is, can he beat him over the course of the whole season? The pressure is going to increase on for, for, for both sides over the course of the season because for different reasons, they're going to be impatient. Max, because it's Verstappen, we've seen already in his uh, racing career, let alone his F1 career, given that his F1 career is longer than his career outside of F1 at the moment. Um, he, he doesn't like sticking around. He doesn't like wasting time. Ricardo, we know, is someone that he needs to get his championship shot sooner rather than later because he's older. But if it doesn't come this year with Red Bull, when will it come with Red Bull? Because there's a chance, obviously, Red Bull could be forced to Honda engines or something in the in the near future. When's that engine going to be capable of a championship challenge? So, I don't know. I, I it, It's maybe a bit too much of a stretch to say it's this year or bust in terms of a short or medium-term Red Bull title challenge. But I think there are going to be lots of different elements that play up that Verstappen-Ricardo fight, not just because they're both mega drivers in a team that's going to let them go at each other. But of course, you're right, Verstappen can afford to be patient because he's young but what we don't see from him on track is patience often that's the one area of weakness maybe there is to exploit from his rivals that when things aren't going his way as we saw at Hungary the start of the race last year he he doesn't react well and he he he's a bad loser as Ricardo put it and that's useful in some aspects but not in the heat of the moment and we, we want to see if he becomes a title contender and challenging for wins regularly, he's going to have to have better judgment, a kind of cooler Lewis Hamilton-style head in the heat of the moment when things aren't going well for you. Ricardo, I think for the first time in his career, and he's admitted this now, he's been put under proper pressure by a teammate before he could get away with making a few mistakes in sessions and still come out on top. He's having to go into new places to meet the challenge of Verstappen, which shows what a quality driver Verstappen is. So his challenge this year is to calm all of that down and not overreach so much, not try to always have the perfect car, not overdrive the car when it's not quite there and let things come to him a bit more. We know that Ricardo's an outstanding racer and a brilliant qualifier. He just needs to kind of put things together and not allow that challenge of Max Verstappen to, to overwhelm him. I suspect Ricardo's best option actually is to find a way to get on terms with Verstappen and then stay at Red Bull rather than seeking these opportunities elsewhere personally. But... It's going to depend, I think, on the on the early stages of the season. Is anyone going to make make a case for anyone other than Lewis Hamilton being pre-season favourite with all those caveats that, yes, we'll see upgrades, etc. before Australia? But it's Lewis Hamilton, fifth world title is the most likely. Yeah, I think, he, I think he's a driver with the, the fewest uncertainties um, regarding the package and where they're at. Um, you've got, you know, whether it's, you know, Sebastian's mindset, the Renault engine, um, the Ferrari chassis, you know, most drivers, you've got a question mark that could bring him down. For Lewis, it doesn't seem to be any any weakness, really. He's, I mean, he's driving on track, apart from that qualifying error in Brazil last year, which was after the championship was done. Didn't make a single mistake, proper error on track last year that cost big points. And I think he'll just thrive on whatever's thrown at him. And it's hard to see past Lewis, isn't it? He's in the groove, the car's excellent, the team's going to be stronger probably than it was last year if the car is ends up being a big step ahead of the rest and this is more like 2015 or 2016 in Mercedes terms then his biggest challenge is going to come from within and from Bottas and obviously there, as John mentioned there are question marks with, with every driver other than Lewis really in the top bracket and that includes Bottas he'll be hoping that you know the start of last year he 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 outscored uh, Seb and, and Lewis from I think it was 
his win in Russia right through to the summer break and then his season fell apart a bit. But of course that coincided with Mercedes almost reverse engineering the car to get it to work and that confused him. If this car's more conventional in the way it operates and the way it's set up, that will help Bottas so he could potentially have a much stronger season. But there's a lot for him to step up to take on Lewis. It's, Lewis is definitely the favourite for me. I feel like that one of the factors that might come into it if it does look a little bit like Lewis is running away with it is... Uh, out, uh, other variables in the title fight that aren't there in the first few races or the first half of the season coming good in the second half. So obviously we had Red Bull as a bit of a disruptive force in the second half of last season, but just not to the extent where they really made a difference. If you could have a Red like Red Bull coming on really strong and have two drivers there that are fighting for wins and it just injecting a little bit of uncertainty. If we are going into this season where universally we're expecting one driver or one team to, to, to walk it, that's not great. But they're... There is reason to hope that there could be a little bit more excitement and variability further down the line. If it's if it's more varied, then you'd you'd have to reckon that you know, it's Hamilton versus Vettel if Ferrari are in the game, and versus Verstappen if Red Bull are in the game, with maybe Ricardo also putting himself into that mix if he gets on top of the problems he had last year. And F1 seasons always throw up uncertainties and unpredictable elements. Um, I saw we saw Valtteri's comments uh, at the end of Barcelona test about the, the uncertainty about blistering on the rears and how the car handles the softer tyres. It seems the testing time seemed to indicate Ferrari again better on the softer element of tyres. So, you know, could that, could Pirelli's choices, the fact that everyone seems to be pushing towards the hyper now to be, come to as many races as possible, you know, could, you know, this Pirelli tyre choice factor being discussed in meetings and emails now be ultimately deciding whether or not Lewis wins his championship? Uh, yeah, and the closer the performance gets, the more important those tiny little details can be in terms of the performance swings and who gets the advantage. Let's have a little look at the rest. Looking at what happened in testing, there's all sorts of ways you can slice and dice the numbers and the performances to make a case for who's best of the rest. If you look at the longer runs, actually teams like Force India and Haas start to come into it. I think we're all feeling that McLaren and Renault are the ones that are best placed. Personally, personally, I feel McLaren's pre-season was shambolic in terms of the reliability. There's serious problems there. But fundamentally, the pace of the car looks encouraging enough. So what do you think, John? Is this going to be... What, what's the story going to be for McLaren this year? I think in the end, they'll get it right. Because I think the car looks quick enough with Fernando Alonso. And you just think that, that huge machine there is going to get it right. Um, I am surprised testing was as bad for them as it was. The, the, the unreliability problems. Um, the change to Renault. You'd think if things would have been smoother, that they'd have got over all these tiny issues... So there is, is an element there. And we saw things like the pit stops. Those, we saw the video of the botched pit stop. We saw the photo of the car off the jacks of the rear. Just these little elements. An area of focus to, for them this year. Zach's yeah. <laughs> been saying pre-season, hasn't he? Eric Bulo was asked about that on the last day of the test. He said, well, we did eight practice pit stops and you're not talking about seven of them. It's like, well, of course not. What, so what? Is one out, of, one out of eight pit stops failing? Is that acceptable? Of course it, it is. It's interesting they seem to have maybe over tightly packaged the rear of that car and they're suffering reliability problems and heat problems well you know they they abandoned that didn't they famously because it didn't work in the first year of the honda relationship but it does seem like maybe they've they've gone all out on the aerodynamic performance of the car and haven't made enough allowances for what is a completely new engine for them and you wonder if this is this fed into some of the problems they had with honda previously that they weren't prepared to to bend enough on their chassis requirements to to make sure the whole thing was working properly. But if they get on top of these problems, if they're not major, as Boulier claims, then you'd have to feel that Renault and McLaren will pull away in that midfield group, even if they're 
embroiled in the maelstrom to start with because they just have so much more resource and so much more development potential on the chassis side. The key thing is going to be keeping those expectations internally in check and there's such an expectation from fans that McLaren were going to be the team that made the big step forward this year that if the season starts off on the back foot, if there's unreliability problems creeping in, if it is only the fourth, fifth quickest team at the start of the season and Fernando's only qualifying ninth, just like he was six. last year. <laughs> yeah, if there's not been the dramatic step forward that many fans are expecting, then the media are going to jump on that. There's going to be questions about what is happening at McLaren. Has it gone there? And then, then it becomes a more difficult situation to, to manage. They need to be clearly fourth this year, don't they, at minimum. They can't really be embroiled in a fight with Renault. They need to be trying to snap at the heels of Ferrari, Red Bull and Mercedes. That's that's what they're banking on for making this switch and asking the shareholders to stick their hands in their pockets. And if they don't deliver on that, then there's going to be big questions to ask, answer, not just from the fans externally, but internally as well. But they can't just be snapping at the heels of Red Bull because last year, how many times did we hear them declare they had the best car or hear Alonso say this car's amazing or in the sector this is stunning? They've, one thing we noticed during testing is that their messaging has changed. So they've gone, they they had this whole spiel about how the, you know, the, the cars, they're, they're ready to build a championship winning car. It's just the engine. The engine was terrible. GP2 engine, all of this. Mm. We could win races sudden, with last year's car, yeah, they exactly, said, in exactly. the right engine. And, yeah. and then you turn up in testing and all of a sudden it becomes, oh, well, no, we need to under-promise and over-deliver and all of this. And it's kind of like, well, well you know, the horse has already bolted a little bit. You've built everyone's expectations up by saying, we're, if we get rid of Honda and have something representative then then we'll be right in the mix so i i think they need to be pushing third in the manufacture in the team championship maybe, maybe they get a little bit of grace because rebels had more time with with the engine and stuff like that but I, I, I still don't see any reason why they shouldn't push in to have the third fastest car at least in the second half of the season if not earlier the, the worst thing that could happen for mclaren is if they're initially beaten or on the same pace as toro rosso with that honda in the back if that happens then it's complete disaster isn't it looking at Toro Rosso I don't think that's going to happen fortunately for them but still they've got a lot of work to do the interesting thing to watch out for McLaren in Australia is I think they're probably going to have the biggest package of anyone in terms of the upgrade they're taking they lock the spec of the test car quite early on which is encouraging in terms of the performance step they can take but frankly if you're going to lock your testing specs so early at least make sure it works and it's not burning bodywork and things that's that's, that's the only point reason to do it isn't it well, exactly. you know, to make so, sure you can run the laps and prove the engine and they couldn't yeah. so so they need that package to go on and for it to work one of the things they need to improve is the slow corner entry rear stability and that upgrade package should solve that but if if they get lost with that then it could be really really bad for them how about the rest scott renault you can make a contention for them being Close challenges to McLaren and best of the rest. Force India have got about half a second upgrade. There's a dark horse as well. Oh, very good. Um, Henry hey. would have been proud of that would pun. Have been very, yeah. It delivered it better. Yeah, that, that one that one was for H. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a really messy midfield battle. The problem is that, similar to what we were saying about sort of why people, why we don't expect anyone to really fight Mercedes because everyone's got limiting factors. It's kind of like that in the midfield. You don't really see anyone properly piecing anything together. The Renault looks like a genuinely good step forward. And you've got one of the best driver lineups on the grid. Um, really exciting driver lineup, Carlos Sainz and uh, Nico Hulkenberg. But they're going to have the same problem as the as Red Bull in terms of the engine maybe being turned down to begin with. And we don't know really quite the quality of the car Enstone has produced. But if you're on the bumps in testing by the looks of it. Yeah. And then Williams, you've got, they've, they've been there or there about you know, fourth or fifth best team in the last couple of years. That have, we have no idea where they are after testing because they were performing so many weird runs trying to unlock some performance and Paddy Lowe said that, that, that they've still got some 
ex- exaggerated issues that they need to solve. Haas has the sort of simplest car of anyone in the midfield and actually looked to be really, really good in, in testing short, uh, like a, you know, one lap pace, longer runs look quite good as well. So maybe we'll see Haas hit the ground running the best of that midfield group in Melbourne. They were really good there last year. Grosjean qualified sixth, I think it was. That's the plan um, for them always, isn't it? To hit the ground running while everyone else is still working out how to develop their cars, bag the points early and then And then I think it'll just be a messy off. fight to try and get to claw your way to the top of that group. And I think it'll fluctuate. So Force India relies on, same as McLaren, Force India's relying on its actual new car turning up in Melbourne and, and being good. But if it doesn't correlate, if it doesn't work from, from the offset, then they're going to be recovering ground. And how how difficult is that to do in, in Formula 1, let alone when you have four or five teams trying to do exactly the same thing? It, it is going to be fascinating in Melbourne to see how this all works out because you can, you can put asterisks against all of those teams and there's reasons why they could do well. Williams, for example, had looked to be struggling a lot throughout testing, but the final afternoon, I think they found something that made the car work a little bit better. Still got that turn in instability but I think they unlocked a bit of pace there so you can make a case for Williams being a bit further forward than they looked it's it's really 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 messy as it often is so those final few Q3 spots could be could be fascinating uh Toro Rosso briefly mentioned John what do you expect from them reliable third most number of laps completed in testing yeah I think they've I mean they've had a, a wonderful honeymoon period with Honda it's one of the kind of the feel-good stories we're seeing this this the team that everyone feared would be a total shambles, a, a, a Honda nightmare continuing, but Honda seems to have made a step on reliability. Um, didn't seem to be any untoward problems or headaches or difficulties, but I don't think we've seen the full pace of that car, and I don't think anyone's under any illusion that suddenly is going to be challenging you know, for the front end of that midfield. But I think as a solid start and as a platform for this project to go forwards, I think you know it's the perfect place to be away from the pressure you know, if Honda are qualifying towards the back, no one's going to particularly care very much. And if they have good results, it'll be suddenly, look how great Honda are. So I think, I think it's a partnership that long term will be be fine. But in the short term, I don't think we're expecting many miracles. I think the amount of resource they've had to pour into the engine installation and getting adapted to Honda has probably compromised a little bit. The car on track, it's not too bad, but the front end looks just looks weak. There were points where the drivers were having to try and play with it, like watching into turn three on the third day of the test. Pierre Gasly, he was kind of moving where the trade-off was around because ideally you just want to turn into that corner and then carry the speed through it. He couldn't do it. He had to make a compromise somewhere because some, at some point the front end would, would let him down. One team we haven't mentioned is Sauber. Scott, Sauber looked like they've gone from kind of the back to the back based on testing. <laughs> uh, it's never a good sign when both your drivers cause red flags by throwing it off into the into the gravel. Um, I think one of the things we said in our things we learned from the second test is it doesn't matter how good your Ferrari prodigy is in one of the cars. If the car's not up to it, you can't make it look special. They did seem to be struggling. Leclerc did seem genuinely positive about the... The, the sort of things that they learned internally in the team over the two weeks. And Ericsson spoke quite eloquently early in the second test about it. There, there's so much new about the package that it's so obvious that it's a big step from last year. The problem is, from his point of view, is that they're, they're really struggling to get the m- most out of it. So he thinks that their peaks will be enough to put them into that midfield fight. The problem was, at, at the time, halfway through the second test, they hadn't quite worked out how to extend that window so they could run at that pace consistently, whether that was over one lap or or long runs. 
and the fact that it, you know the the car ended up in the gravel and actually hit the wall lightly on the on the final day uh, interrupted one of Leclerc's. I think he only had two race runs and that interrupted one of them um, or, or impacted on one of them because it that combined with a separate issue that we don't know exactly what it was ruined their running for that day massively limited them so they were arguably the team that had the most to learn over the two weeks of testing because of how much it changed and they've come away with a, a load of question marks. Sounds a little bit similar to last year. I remember Sauber saying they had a handling imbalance in the car early on and they had to work through the season to kind of develop that out of the car. And by the end, actually, the chassis was pretty reasonable, but it was held back by running an old engine and, and worse settings. So you'd hope that they could get on top of those problems with a few upgrades and then take the benefit of having the the newer Ferrari engine but yeah question marks there certainly and also I think with Toro Rosso and, and Williams Toro Rosso obviously the engine you mentioned the chassis being a bit weak Honda feel like they've got the right concept now but it's easy to look solid in testing if you can make it run Renault have turned their engine down to make it run reliably the question comes when you need to turn it up to match everybody we don't know Honda can do that without blowing it to bits yet and Williams they have question marks over the chassis and also the drivers well, this period of the year is all about question marks. And I think although Mercedes are looking strong, it's going to be well worth following what goes on. Even if they're at the front of the start of the season, there's lots of room for improvement from Ferrari and Red Bull. So it's going to be a fascinating season. And you can follow it all on autosport.com, motorsport.com, Autosport Magazine out every Thursday. Uh, we've now got to the point where we have to have the, the outro of the podcast. And I'm not really very good at these. Sometimes I have to re-record them. So just one last time, I'm going to ask an old friend to help me out. Over to you, Henry. Thanks for listening to the uh, final pre-season Autosport podcast. I'm Henry Hope Frost. Thank you to my panel. Enjoy the season and we'll be back soon. And that's a lap. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. And for me, well, frankly, if it moves and makes a noise, I love it. Whether I'm watching it or standing there at it, you know, whatever. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.